I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to uh, the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, as we will find our way there very shortly, Matthew chapter 15. As you make your journey there, a couple of other elements. Um, I know that all of us love a good mystery. A couple weekends ago, I think last weekend, a number of our young adults did did a murder mystery. Can you imagine that as a church activity? It sounds kind of odd to put in the bulletin where we did a murder mystery. And one of our folks did it, just so you know. I'd watch out for him. But nonetheless, a murder mystery. Uh, All of us love mysteries, I suppose. Some of us raised with Alfred Hitchcock and Murder, She Wrote, and some of these other, oh goodness sakes, mysteries of some sort. In the Bible, the term mystery is used as well, but it's used in a very different way than that. Um, The Apostle Paul uses the word mystery to describe some element of truth that God has now revealed that previously was hidden. All right. And he 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 uses the term mystery in one place. I'm going to read from in Ephesians chapter three, all of this preparing us heading to the text in Matthew 15. And I read this morning earlier, Psalm 96 which was a a reminder to us of God's heart for the nations, uh, the non-Jewish people. The Old Testament, God calls the Jewish people to be his own special people, giving them the law, giving them revelation, and through them bringing the Messiah, the Savior. Now, as the New Testament comes and Jesus comes, the church begins, uh, God does something new, and that is he combines into this new body called the church both Jew and Gentile. And let me tell you, that was radical information. Uh, That was a rough go, pulling together the Jewish crowd and the non-Jewish crowd, different cultures, different religious backgrounds, different presuppositions, and putting them together in one body called the church. And at times that didn't go well, frankly, to read the book of Acts, you will find a struggle in the early church. Interestingly, of course... A struggle that goes down to our day, isn't that right? As one type of person needs to welcome another as a brother or a sister in Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul, I reference, uh, says some things about this in Ephesians 3. He talks about the mystery of Christ, and he spells it out. And I'm going to read just a couple verses on our way to Matthew 15. He says, this mystery, this mystery of Christ is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He says of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me, though I'm the very least of all the saints. This grace was given to preach among the Gentiles, the unfathomable riches of Christ. So Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. And part of his message is, Hey, everybody listen up. In Christ, there was, a, there was a physical barrier in the temple that separated Jew from Gentile. That's gone now. In one body, all those who are uh, what the Jewish people consider in, kind of insiders and all the rest were to come as one people. Now, there's a pattern here, isn't there? Because even in our day, things separate one type of person or one ethnicity or one uh, language group from another. And in Christ, God says, no, come, come together, come. Uh, In our text today, we're going to see God's heart for a lost world. We're going to see him in Matthew 15 take a journey that I think shocked his Jewish followers. 
And it should be a pattern. His, his heart should be a pattern for us as we interact with people who may not be exactly like us. People we may consider far from the, from the, the family of God. So that's what we're going to see today. And I hope your heart will be ready to walk with Jesus as you see his heart for a lost world. I want to pray for us and we'll jump into the text. Our Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. Thank you for how you, you, you teach us and you shepherd us along. I thank you for how scripture after scripture just unfolds the human condition, the human heart, and points us to our need for Christ. And we're going to see that again today, our Father, our own a profound need for a Savior. And our Father, we come to you as we open the scriptures, asking for your help. Uh, tenderize our hearts, open our ears, help us to hear and love the truth and respond in faith. Uh, we ask this of you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Matthew 15 today, of course, continuing our journey through the whole gospel of Matthew. Every three or four years, we deal with one of the gospels. We did Mark and then John and then Luke and Acts. And now as we make our, our trip through the gospel of Matthew, looking at Jesus, we have so much to learn. On your study sheet there that you picked up from the bulletin, of course, words of review from past sermons to kind of help you get a, a sense of where we've been and where we're going. Uh, a word or two about today's text. And then if you would, just glance with me, uh, both at your sermon notes and then at the, the chapter ahead of us, just to get a sense of where we're going. Uh, my sermon notes are laid out with two sections, verses 1 through 20 of Matthew 15, and then uh, verses 21 to 39, really three sections that fit underneath that heading. And we're going to see the chapter laid out in really in four groups, four paragraphs. The first one is the longest, where Jesus... Uh, well, it has another encounter with these people we love to hate, so to speak, the scribes and the Pharisees, Pharisees and scribes, these religious leaders that Jesus is constantly finding himself in conflict with. So we'll go there. And I think that's part of God's heart for a lost world, too, by the way, because he's defining truth and he's addressing people who who consider faith to be something external. Uh, more about that in a minute. But I'd like to I'd like to read then the first 20 verses and we'll deal with that sections under the heading. We need a clean heart, not just clean hands. So Matthew 15 is together. We look at verses one to 20. We read this in God's word. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, and and why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what you could have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him, and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? 
He answered, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And Peter said, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? And what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And I'll stop there for the moment. Now, I mentioned, of course, that the Pharisees and scribes uh, were kind of a group of people we love to kind of pick on as we study the Bible. But I, I would caution us in the joy we take with that task. <laughs> Here's why. Uh, I, I think there's something in every human heart that does the same thing. That is likes to, well, find little areas of behavior that allow us to pat ourselves on the back before God. I mean, for example, a person might say, I keep track every day. I read my Bible and pray, and I've been doing that every day without fail for like 27 years. There you go. I'm not, I'm not saying that in a proud way. I'm just saying it in a humble sort of way. 27 years, six months, and three days, to be exact. But, but you know, I'm not saying it's not a, it isn't a wonderful thing to read your Bible and pray every day. But, but here's the thing. Reading your Bible and praying every day without fail doesn't make God love you anymore. And it doesn't give you a front seat on the, on the bus to heaven ahead of anybody else, does it? But there are things that we sometimes do. Uh, good things that somehow become to us a source of, well, somehow thinking that you're on the inside track with Jesus just a little more. You know what I mean by this? Sometimes it's things that people avoid. I would never do that. Mm. I silence all commercials. I, I don't know what it is. But there are things people do that are external that sometimes become to us some source of spiritual pride. So as we pick on these guys, be very careful because honestly, you may do similar things. So, well, Jesus now being addressed by these scribes and Pharisees over an issue of tradition. They come to him saying, why do your disciples not wash their hands? Now, right away, we say, well, I, what's wrong with they should wash their hands before they eat? I've been telling my kids this for years. Uh, this is not about sanitation, you understand. It's not about germs. It's not about Purell. Uh, this is about, I, I can't think of a better way to say it than holy cooties. All right? Uh, I'm not meaning to pick on them, but a tradition that said, uh, we're God's people, and we're kind of, you know, holy, and we're set apart to God and sanctified, and, and then I'm going to go out to the market, and I'm going to buy potatoes from, from you. And you may not be as close to God, or you may be a Gentile person who's selling me the potatoes, and those potatoes, I don't know about them, so when I get back home, I'm simplifying, forgive me. I'm going to get back home to my house, put the potatoes down, and I need to ceremonially wash my hands because I probably touched some kind of, you know, ickiness today. It's not about germs. It's about being set apart to God. Now, uh, washing your hands, you understand physically, wonderful for germs' sake, but not to make you any closer to God. But these folks had turned it into a, a science. 
in fact, D.A. Carson, in his fine commentary on Matthew, points out the degree to which some of these guys had discussions like, how about this? How much water you must use to wash said hands? Can you just dip it in a little finger bowl and be ceremonially clean? Or exactly how must you wash your hands to be ceremonially clean? And Carson quotes one of them, uh, uh, one rabbi who commented on this, and here was his decision. If a man pours water over one hand with a single cleansing, his hand is clean. But if over both hands with a single cleansing... This particular guy says they're unclean unless he pours over them a quarter log or more. That's a measure of water. So a certain amount of water if I'm going to have both my hands clean. How would you like to hang out with that guy? You didn't use enough water. Would you pour a little more water on your hands to get them ceremonially clean from the religious cooties? Wow. Well, again, we can look at them and say, what are they thinking? External. Now, Jesus doesn't even address the hand washing thing, does he? He just comes right back at him the other way and says, oh, oh, okay, so I see. You like religious minutiae, don't you? Religious tradition. Let's talk about another one of your favorites. And he goes after it here. He says, why do you break the commandment of God? If you're picking on my guys, verses 1 and 2, what about what you do? Verse 3, you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. God said, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you've come up with a new rule. Specifically, if a person says to his father and mother, what you could have gained from me. In other words, I've given my estate to God. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I've given my, this is the idea. I've given my estate to God, uh, so I can't help you. Now, you guys, we all know, back in the day, there wasn't such a thing as social security for the older folks, was there? So if you got to a place where you couldn't work the fields or make a, a living for yourself, you really were dependent on those kids that you grounded when they were in you know, third grade. You were dependent on them to take care of you in your older years. And so here he says, I mean, that's a commandment of God to honor your, honor your parents, whatever that looks like in a particular generation. Well, that generation involved a lot of practical help. They didn't have other ways to do it. But they've come up with this cool little way to say, just give your estate to God. You can use it now as long as you're alive. You just don't have to help the folks. You just tell them it's been Corbin set apart for God. It's holy. And when I die, I just want to have a lot more to give to the Lord. Sorry, mom and pops shouldn't have sent me to my room in third grade. So you get the idea. Jesus says, well, if you're concerned about you're concerned about traditions that are important. Let's talk about this one. Here's one that you you practice because it's to the good as people leave their, you know, their estates or their money, so to speak. Uh, but you're dishonoring God in his very, the very word of God. So he addresses them on the same type of deal. Now I have on your study sheet here, not only a debate on how much water a person must use, but under that second bullet point, Jesus is addressing them about traditions. Traditions aren't necessarily bad, are they? We all have traditions. Churches have traditions, but he's saying this, you be careful that your little pet traditions don't violate, don't violate the commands of God. And in this particular case, he says, you're addressing me on a tradition, but if you're concerned about honoring God, let's talk about that. He quotes Isaiah to them, calls them hypocrites. That's kind of a big deal, <laughs> don't you think? Calling, calling these guys hypocrites. Quotes Isaiah to them, you're honoring me with your lips. Your hearts are far from me. Jesus always seems to focus on the internal, doesn't he? He always talks about the heart. 
Why is it that people tend to focus on the external? Well, for one, it appeals to human pride because I can meet the standards that I set for myself. But if I were to take a look on the inside, that's a much harder go. Uh, But that's what God cares about the most. We see that over and over. Now, that's where Jesus is going in verses 10 through 19. He steps from the external and says, folks, do you, do you hear this? It's not what goes into a person. It's what comes out of a person, what comes out of a heart. I find it interesting in verse 12, you noticed as we read, the disciples said to Jesus, the Pharisees are offended at you. We live in a day when a lot of people would say the same thing, right? We're offended. We're offended. Those are big words. Well, back in the day, apparently people were offended too. And it's, it's interesting in verse 13, you don't see Jesus stopping and saying, oh, no. Oh, my goodness. That was never my intent. I am so sorry I offended you. No, in fact, he, he did intend for there to be a little collision here, didn't he? Uh, he intended his words. Now, he, he wasn't, oh, mark the difference, please. He was not offensive, was he, in what he said? But people took offense because he spoke truth. Sometimes today, even Christian people, sometimes not only offend by what they say, but they are offensive. Let us never be doing that. It's one thing to address truth. It's another thing to do it in an offensive way. I've seen good people at times say something in an offensive way, and yet at the same time say, I think they were offended at the truth. When honestly, they were really offended because you were kind of obnoxious in how you said it. So we want to be careful about this, don't we? Jesus was not offensive in what he said, but they were offended. I think that's an important uh, distinction to make. Jesus addresses the issues of the heart. He says this, and I put it here in front of you. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if your biggest problem was for, before God really was that you didn't wash your hands right? Can you imagine if that really was your biggest problem? Hey, what's your problem? I don't wash my hands right. Oh, for goodness sakes, we can deal with that. They have a booth at the Puyallup Fair about how to wash your hands right, don't they? Every year, you just go in there, you'll get a little lesson on how to wash your hands right, stick it under ultraviolet light, say, I'm lousy at this, and wash them again. You'll get better every year, and God will love you more. If it was only that simple. But of course, all of us know it's not about that, isn't it? It's not about washing our hands, the Bible over and over again. And Jesus does it here. He points out the fact that we have a problem with our hearts because from the time we're born, we are, we are born with a sin nature. The Bible says now, right? Ever since Adam and Eve, we are born with a sin nature. Sometimes people think we're, we're sinners because we sin. The Bible flips that on its head. Did you know that? It isn't that we're sinners because we sin. We, we sin because we're sinners. We're born with a heart that turns aside. Those little darling kids we were looking at up there. Oh, Lord, love them all. Sinners, everyone. Isn't that right? Desperately in need of a Savior. They live with you. You know it. No, they need Jesus just like you do. (laughs) Nobody has to tell them, grab that toy and say mine. They don't look at you and go, really? Seriously? No, they just do it. Because in our hearts, from the time we're little, we we say mine. We stake out our territory. We want the biggest cookie. We do. You do. Ask anybody who knows you. We're, we're, we sin be, because we're sinners. Our hearts, from the time we are born, 
The heart is deceitful, Jeremiah would say, above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Why do our hearts turn like that? The songwriter says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Our hearts, our hearts turn aside, don't they? That's what Jesus is addressing here. He says, it's not, it's not whether you wash your hands right or wrong. It's not what you eat. That's not going to make you more holy before God. It's what's coming out of your heart and what flows out of your mouth. Jesus would say earlier, and he refers to a similar thing here. What comes out of your heart or mouth shows what's in your heart. And it shows not that you need to try harder. Oh, dear friends, please get this external religion. And sometimes, sometimes even within the church. People get the idea that God is calling us to try harder to live better. You ever kind of felt that? I need to try harder. I mean, come on. And I, and I understand, you know, I understand human effort and, and, you know, making a checklist. I have no problem. Make a checklist and read your Bible. I, I get that. But, but you know what? In terms of finding favor with God, there's not a checklist in the world. Because your heart and my heart turn away from him. And we need a savior, the Lord Jesus. No righteousness that you could ever come up with, whether through all kinds of good things, no righteousness from going to church, giving money to good causes, reading your Bible and praying every day, confessing every known sin. All of those things cannot merit forgiveness, favor with God. See, only the righteousness of Christ can cover your sin. Now, those things are good to do because they help us, but they're not things we do to earn forgiveness. They do it be, we, we do those things because we're forgiven. Don't hear me say, don't ever read your Bible. That's not the point. The point is you do it because you're forgiven, not to earn the forgiveness. Does that make sense? I sure want you to get the distinction because I think we're like these guys. Our hearts tend somehow to think that we're doing these good things to earn God's favor. Rather than because God has already loved us and cared for us and forgiven us. Now, any good we do should be because of, not for. Oh, I hope that makes sense to you. We need a clean heart, not just clean hands. We need a Savior who cleans us on the inside and teaches us to walk with him. That's what we need. Well... I want to go to that next big section, verses 21 to 39. We're going to see three different encounters here. Just a little introduction, because I'm going to read them all at once. Verses 21 to 39, we're going to see Jesus dealing with an individual. Then we're going to see him dealing with what sounds like a little larger crowd. Numbers aren't given. It says great crowds. And then finally, this much bigger crowd and a similar scene to what we saw in chapter 15. So I want to read those together. And then, then talk about what's going on here. Very interesting things, I believe. Matthew 15, then, verse 21, again, as we turn to God's word, we read this. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Key phrase. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. The disciples said to him, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish and directing the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. They took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Okay, what's going on here? Well, it sounds remarkably similar to other accounts in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, uh, just in last week's text, Matthew 14, we saw Jesus feeding the 5,000. So how can it be that these guys are so thick that a chapter later, they're saying, well, I don't know how we're going to feed them. I mean, what's going on here with these guys? Well, let me give just a couple of things that I think will help us to make sense of this. First of all, there is greater time taking place here than a compressed account would seem to indicate. Now, just to, for example, here's where I get this. All right? If you go to verse 21... It says Jesus went from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. This is where the uh, geography and so on comes in as a really cool tool to use. If you look at your, if you have a study Bible in the back, you'll, you can take a look at a a map of Jerusalem or Israel at the time of Jesus. You'll, you'll, you'll find Tyre uh, to the north and west of the area of Galilee where Jesus was. Uh, Let me just say 25 to 30 miles. How do you get there? Walk. Well, you're not going to do that in two hours. So there's there's a journey that he takes. There's a lot of movement in this text. Uh, he moves from the area of Galilee up and west over to Tyre and Sidon. Then you're going to find out. And again, you're going to use Mark for this because Mark gives a little more geography to it. Uh, feeding of the 4,000 shows up in Matthew and Mark. Feeding of the 5,000 shows up in all four Gospels. But, but nevertheless, the geographical movement in this text, some of it's in this account, some of it's in Mark. He goes from Galilee up to the area of Tyre and Sidon. Then he comes back down across the Jordan River, and he goes down the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Why is all that important? Here's why. Oh, man, it makes complete makes sense of the text. These are Gentile areas. 
Jesus moves out of the Jewish areas, moves up to the Gentile areas, and then back around the area called the Decapolis, predominantly Gentile area. The Jewish Messiah, is, it's like he's going on a mission trip. He's taking his Jewish followers with him, I believe, wide-eyed, watching the Jewish Messiah go into Gentile areas and love them and heal them and distribute kingdom blessings to these people that you're kind of supposed to wash your hands after being around. That's what's going on really in this text. I want to take a look at this section by section. And uh, uh, just uh, you look at your study sheet here, some of that's kind of spelled out a little bit. How will the Jewish Messiah interact with the nation? Sometimes in the Bible, we, we see the word Gentile uh, as opposed to Jew, Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile. Often those things set uh, against one another. Um, the, the term Gentile typically translates the Greek word ethne or ethnos from which we get the term ethnic or ethnic groups. So when you read the word Gentile, uh, don't think of a specific group. Just think of a non-Jewish crowd. We might also, in many, many cases, you could translate it the nations. and It would make a little more sense to us. The Messiah, in a sense, goes to the nations, to the non-Jewish crowd. Well, verses 21 to 28, were you troubled as I read that paragraph? Yeah, it kind of leaves uh, kind of a funny feeling in your heart about, I mean, Jesus, what's going on here? I mean, are you being unkind to this woman? Well, I want to talk about this. I don't believe he's being unkind. I, I think I'm going to give you a little bit of color commentary. I want to separate my color commentary and the color commentary from another speaker that I'll tell you about. I want to separate that from the inspired text. I'm not an inspired uh, pastor in that sense of the specific inspiration of scripture. You understand might be inspired in other ways. I don't know, but uh, nonetheless, um, the, the text is what it is, and I, I, I think there's something else going on here that begins to make sense of it. Part of it, I would say this. I believe Jesus, in this interaction, is not only talking to the woman, but, but listen, listen so carefully. I think he's talking to his disciples through the woman. Okay? I think he is almost talking around her to some disciples who are thinking, oh, here come some Gentiles, right? Let's see how he treats these guys. All right, here they come. Those people, they're coming. That's what I think is going to happen here. So Jesus comes to Tyre and Sidon, a Canaanite woman, of course, with this tremendous need. She comes and addresses Jesus as, as, as Lord and son of David. Can you imagine the audacity of this? She's using a, a, a title for the Jewish Messiah, son of David. Hey, wait a minute. You're using church language. I, I don't know that they were thinking this, but from what follows, I would not be surprised. Here's this Gentile lady saying, oh, Lord, son of David. I can just see these Jewish guys going, hey, hey, wait, wait, hold on. Um, Gentile lady, uh, you're talking to us. What do you mean, son of David? That's our, those are our terms. It's Christian language. Why are you using, I don't know that they're thinking that, but I wonder. Now, he doesn't answer her a word. I think this is a dramatic pause. I don't think he's ignoring her. It's a dramatic pause. I think he's waiting maybe for the disciples to catch up. The disciples come and beg him saying, send her away. She's crying out after us. Now, what do you make of that? Some would read this and and do There's discussion in the academy about this. Are they saying to Jesus, heal her quickly and move her on? Or are they saying, get rid of her? 
Well, we don't know, do we? We would like to assume the best and that they were all just showing compassion and saying, oh, Jesus, just just help her so much now. I don't think so. Part of that I take from other places in the Gospels where you find this, this group of Jewish guys who are not all down for loving on people outside. And I give you one reference for that here on your study sheet. There it is, Luke 954, my third bullet point under that heading. This is the place where Jesus and his disciples are moving through the area of Samaria, and they're not real receptive to Jesus and his disciples. They're good Jewish folks on their way to Jerusalem, and they're looking for lunch, and the folks in the nearby village aren't having it. And that's the place where I think it's James and John ask, you ready for this? I mean, good guys, right? They, call, they ask Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven? Isn't this a great way to love on them? They're not nice to us, uh, Jesus. How about a lightning strike? Uh, and, and here you are again. Here's a Canaanite woman coming. She's one of those outsiders. And she's crying out after. It sounds like she's making a ruckus. And the disciples come and say, hey, Jesus, could you kind of move her on? Move her on down? That's the way I read this. I, I don't want to be too hard on the guys. But I suspect that they're thinking, hey, come on, Jewish guys, Jewish Messiah. Here's this lady. She's not really, you know, one of the one of us. And here's what here's where I reference uh, on my study sheet here. I, I'm, I'm referencing a guy by the name of Don Richardson. He wrote the book Peace Child. He wrote the book Eternity in Their Hearts. Missiologist, years and years. You'd have to know the, the stories in those books to understand. Um, but years on the mission field. And I remember listening to him at one of our IFCA pastors conferences. I want to say 30 years ago. Got to be. Uh, he, he's probably with the Lord these days. I don't know, but he, he preached on this text and this, this is where I get my little comment here. Don Richardson suggests that in this text, there may be a wink going on body language taking place. And when you read it this way, I remember this because as I listened to Don Richardson speak on this, I remember thinking, oh, that makes complete sense that there's something here that we're not seeing. Um, typically a, a text, a narrative gives the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And again, we're, we're making a guess here, but it makes sense of what's going on. That is, um, think of it like this. This lady comes, Jesus is Jesus. He's, he's a kind hearted guy. People come in need with needs and he does love them. And here comes this lady and his Jewish guys going, Hey, 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 excuse me, step back. Just like they did to the kids. Keep the kids away. Our Messiah is busy. Jesus said, hey, hey, bring the kids. And here's this lady. And they're saying, hey, Jesus is busy. She's crying out after us. Send her away. And I suspect that Jesus at this moment makes some eye contact with her. I don't know what you would do with eye contact with the Savior. But I have a hunch that it wouldn't have been a brick wall. Number of places in the Gospels you find Jesus looking and seeing. You remember this with Peter. Jesus looked. And, and there was a moment. Well, Don Richardson would explain it this way. There's a moment when she makes eye contact with Jesus. She knows she's an outsider. She knows that. She knows she's coming to a Jewish Messiah. Says, Jesus, Lord, son of David, help. He's waiting for the guys. He's teaching them a lesson. So they have this little dialogue. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Wink. She gets it. Richardson would suggest. She gets it. He's waiting for the disciples to come on board. She says, Lord, please help. Please help. He says, well, <clears throat> hey, guys, 
it's not right to take the bread for the kids and throw it to the dogs, right? Wink. She knows. She waits. The disciples are probably saying, well, yeah. What's she, what? she, he's making a point. Yes, Lord. Verse 27, her confession of faith. Yes, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And at that point, he, he, he breaks the moment and says, absolutely. You know, here's your need. Let your need be met. Well, Richardson would take body language and say, you know, I think something's going on there between Jesus and her. If only that wink, if only that look of reassurance that says, ma'am, I see you. By the way, you know, sometimes we, as we translate things, uh, oh, woman, great is your faith. That sounds kind of, even that sounds like arm's length, doesn't it? Oh, woman, we would never say that today. Hello, woman. Uh, my goodness sakes, you would get slapped uh, very quickly. Misunderstood. Wow. Uh, it, it would not be a, an appropriate greeting. It was an appropriate greeting in that sense, in, in that culture to say, oh, woman, that would that would have been a kind gesture, just like daughter. Uh, it was it was a normal greeting from one to another. So when Jesus answered and says, oh, woman, great is your faith. There's, that, that's not a distant Statement that could be very easily a warm-hearted, uh, my dear, uh, dear friend, you have great faith. So don't think of Jesus harshly here. Well, all of that to say, Jesus deals with an individual, an outsider, and he meets her need. Then you go to the next paragraph, verses twenty. Um, where are we? Twenty-nine to thirty-one. And there's a crowd, nothing remarkable here. It sounds like what Jesus has been doing the whole time, except if you follow the, the geography in Mark's gospel, this is in a Gentile area. These are the outsiders. These are those people. And they come and they're bringing all of these people for, for kingdom blessings, things that I, Jewish crowd thought belonged to them. This is what Jesus was doing in Galilee a chapter ago. Great crowds come bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute. And rather than sending them away, he heals them all. Can you imagine? Compassion on those people. That's what's going on in this paragraph. That's why it's such a big deal. Jesus, Jewish Messiah, loves the outsider too. He gives them the same loving care he gave the insiders. Can you imagine? Then again, you come to verses 32 through 39. Similarly, find it so striking if you look back to chapter 14 i don't think this is by accident chapter 14 verse 4 jesus sees the large crowd it's a jewish crowd it's the insiders he sees the great crowd what's to say about it uh, he has compassion on them meets their needs chapter 15 a gentile crowd comes how does jesus see them well according to verse 32 jesus called his disciples to him and he said I have compassion on the crowd. Do you, do you hear him? You were with me when I said I had compassion on the Jewish crowd. And now we're surrounded by the Gentile crowd in great need. Hey, boys, I have compassion on this crowd, too. And he meets their need and he feeds them just like he did the Jewish crowd before. Now, uh, different people who have written and preached and commented on these two texts try to make something out of the five loaves and two fish and 12 baskets, the seven loaves and a few fish and seven baskets and the numbers 5,004. They tried to make deals out of that. I'll let you read that and pursue that on your own. In other words, I don't think it's the main point of the text. Merry Christmas. Uh, you can study that. Well, 
I think the main point is Jesus extending kingdom blessings. Now, I want you to look with me down at that section called response to God's word. I want to, I want to comment on two different areas as we bring our time here today to a conclusion. Uh, the chapter begins with 20 verses. Jesus defending the spiritually vulnerable from people who really were big on externals. And he, he takes them to the heart of true faith. And he, he, he protects them from people who try to develop such minutia for how you could be right with God that about nobody could keep the rules. And I'm glad Jesus took them on and he would do the same thing to us and for us. That is wanting to protect us even from ourselves. When we try to set up standards that says, if I could do this, 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 maybe God would finally either grant my request or welcome me into his heaven. Maybe if I behaved this way, maybe if I went to church more, God would be kinder to me. Maybe if I started going to church, it would deal with this illness or this problem. If I just go to church, it would fix my marriage. Well, you know what? God, God isn't driven by the externals. He sees our hearts and our hearts are pretty messed up. That's what Jesus says. What takes place in the heart that defiles us. And all of that drives us straight to Jesus. It's why you need a savior. You don't need Jesus just to help you do better. You need him to save you from your sin. You need the righteousness that can only come from him. Because even on your best month of behaving well, right? Good luck with that, by the way. Try five minutes first and then go from there. But see if you can just do it right for five minutes. And probably not because it's a struggle without thinking one bad thought for five minutes. Man, try that alone in front of a mirror. No, we need a savior. We need a savior whose righteousness covers our sin and then helps us to live in obedience because we're forgiven. That's the biblical order. I'm so glad that Jesus takes the time to kind of break it down for us. And then we see Jesus walk straight to crowds of people who aren't on the inside track. It's kind of the message of Matthew heading all the way to chapter 28, go into all the world, preach the gospel to all the ethnic groups. Well, Jesus is showing us an example. He says, Hey, do you, do you love, do you, do you love those different from you? Do you? This is, this is a text kind of about that as, as Jesus takes kingdom blessings and distributes them to the nations. A Jewish Messiah, I think foreshadowing what's going to happen with the church. Jews, come, come, it's your Messiah. Gentiles, come, non-Jewish people, come, all of you together. This family of God called the church. I think that's what's going on here in this, in this text. If you keep track of children's books, some of you might have this one, King Leonard Celebration. I'm a book guy, but I have books for kids, too, and I like this one. This is a retelling of a story that shows up in Luke 14 and in a, in, with some other details in Matthew 22. Probably same story told at a different occasion. But King Leonard Celebration is based on a little, little story Jesus told in Luke 14. I'm going to read this. And then with this, we'll kind of pull our thoughts together today. But it goes like this. When one of those at the table with Jesus heard what Jesus was saying, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. 
Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet, invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who'd been invited, come, for everything is now ready. They all alike begin to make excuses. The first said, I just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And others said, I just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to the master. The owner of the house became angry, ordered his servants, go out quickly to the, to the streets and alleys of the town. Bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done. There's still room. The master told the servant, go into the highways, the country lanes, and make them, compel them, compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of these who were invited will get a taste of my kingdom. The Bible describes numerous times a coming, a coming banquet in God's kingdom. Jesus refers to this in the gospel of Matthew when he says at that last supper, I'll not drink of the fruit of the vine from this day forward until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Book of Revelation addresses a future banquet as well. A time of celebration, a feasting that says we're here. We're in the presence of God and it is done. The struggles are over. The tears have been wiped from our eyes. A coming banquet. Jesus invites to the banquet. Oh, yes, those who were originally called the Jewish crowd. (laughs) And with many of them not coming, he invites all the rest. And he says, come, come, come. Come to my banquet. He says that to you today. Wherever you are with God, if you've never come in faith to Christ, God's invitation is come. Come to him today. Here in this room, listening later, the invitation of God, come to my banquet. Come by trusting Christ as your savior from sin. That's the message of the church as well. To those in our Jerusalem, come to the banquet. Come come i'd like to pray for us would you stand with me please as we do that father thank you so much for your word thank you for telling us what you are like thank you for telling us your heart thank you for showing us here the heart of jesus for the lost world yes defending against error and then calling to himself men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation saying, come, come be part of my family. Come to the banquet. Father, I pray for any in the sound of my voice here or those listening later who have never trusted Christ, that they do it now, that they acknowledge their need for a savior and trust Christ as their savior from sin. Our father may this message be loudly communicated to this church family, to our Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and through us to the uttermost parts of the world. Thank you for our time here today in your word. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.